0: Welcome to Ohio Matters, the Cleveland.com Politics Podcast. I'm Seth Richardson. I'm Mary Kilpatrick. And I'm Andrew Tobias. And as always, thanks for tuning in. Special thanks to the Cleveland Public Library for helping us out with this podcast, giving us the equipment, giving us the room to use. We really appreciate all the hard work that they do for us. If you haven't yet, be sure to subscribe to this podcast. And when you do that, rate and review us. It helps other people find this podcast. And if you have any feedback that you want to send in, you want to request a guest or anything like that, go ahead and send it to my email. That's srichardson at cleveland.com. Again, that's srichardson at cleveland.com. This week on Ohio Matters, we are joined by a special guest host, federal courts reporter Eric Heisig. Eric, thanks for joining us this week. We really appreciated it. Thank you for having me. Pulling in the, the the heavy hitters, we are. That's Good what to we're see doing, you, Eric. So the reason that we're having Eric on the show is because it's the 10 year anniversary of the Cuyahoga County corruption scandal that saw uh, really just a wide range of crimes being committed by uh, county government officials. It shook a lot of, uh, it shook up government a lot in Cuyahoga County and really had some effects statewide. And we really wanted to have kind of not only a retrospective, but have a couple of uh, people in the know come on and uh, talk about the. The interesting aspects and sort of the effects. So uh, Eric, could you go ahead and give us just kind of a rundown of what the corruption scandal was? Sure. Um, the corruption scandal
1: was pretty much prompted by a federal investigation undertaken by the FBI and the IRS here in Cleveland. Uh, it's notable, as you said, this week, um, because July 28, 2008 was the day that more than 100 agents fanned out around Cuyahoga County, hitting government offices, contractors' offices, homes, and just about every other place you can imagine that may have a tentacle uh, that touches Cuyahoga County government and really all its facets. Uh, from there, uh, agents had been working on this investigation for about a year at this point, and f- July 28, 2008 was really the day that it broke open, leading to convictions against dozens of people, Uh, for various corruption scandals, bribery scandals, racketeering, really just about anything you can think of. uh, The FBI and the IRS ended up uncovering it. Um, The top two were Jimmy DeMora and Frank Russo, the uh, former county commissioner and the uh, auditor, respectively. Um, But there were plenty of other people that were uh, convicted of a lot of wrongdoing here in the county.
0: And it's really important to note how much this really affected not only the Northeast Ohio region, but the state of Ohio overall. The county government was completely overhauled in Cuyahoga. Uh, there were some kind of tangential effects that uh, sort of spread out after that. And the uh, Democratic Party here in the county was also pretty much decimated. I don't think they have ever really fully recovered. Probably the biggest effect statewide is uh, it led to the rise of Ed Fitzgerald. Uh, Ed Fitzgerald became the first Cuyahoga County executive. That's the position that was formed to uh, you know, overhaul county government, and I think we all know how Ed Fitzgerald, uh, how his storyline went, um, and what that meant not only for you know Fitzgerald personally, but uh, the Democratic Party as a whole. They uh, they got wiped out in the 2014 election because he just wasn't a great candidate. John Kasich won Cuyahoga County, actually, which is incredibly rare for a Republican, especially since you know Democrats outnumber Republicans what up here like five to one or something that's just one example of the statewide effect that this uh, investigation and this uh, trial had on everyone. So this is going to be a bit of a different podcast. Uh, Eric and I talked with Cleveland.com editor Chris Quinn. That's right. We got the boss on the show today, guys. So, you know, make sure you're on uh, your uh, your top behavior. We also had former federal prosecutor Ann Roland who was really in charge of a lot of the investigation and we wanted to have both of those uh, you know, both those people on because Chris had some unique insight as the Metro editor at the time and really led the papers charge in kind of covering this. And the plane dealer at the time faced a lot of flack for, you know, missing that this was going to happen. Everything they did after, you know, they covered it with a fine-tooth comb, but before that, you know, they didn't have it. And they did get a lot of flack for it. We wanted to have Ann on, I think, because you know, she's the prosecutor. You don't always get that inside sort of look at uh, what the prosecution is doing. I think even after the trial, I mean, we learned things today. I think Chris learned some stuff today just from having that sort of behind the scenes look. So you're going to hear Eric and myself interviewing both Chris and Ann, and I, I think people are really going to enjoy it. So uh, with that, let's go ahead and uh, get to the interview that Eric and I did with uh, Chris and Ann Today on a very special episode of Ohio Matters, we've got two great guests that are going to talk about the uh, county corruption scandal that happened 10 years ago joining us now is chris quinn editor of cleveland.com he was the metro editor at uh, at the plane dealer at the time yep all right thank you so much for joining us chris we really appreciate it and also joining us is ann Rowland, former federal prosecutor she was in charge of a lot of the uh investigation into uh the entire scandal that went down and thank you so much for joining us
2: thank you for having me
1: we're actually just going to start right at the beginning um Ann, if you could just talk a little bit about how the corruption investigation began and how it kind of ballooned and mushroomed from there.
2: Well, it all started for me in the summer of 2007 when I was asked to go over to the FBI and hear a pitch from them about an investigation they wanted to do of Jimmy DeMora and Frank Russo. At the time, Jimmy DeMora was the one of three county commissioners, and Frank Russo was his political ally and friend and was the... Cuyahoga County Auditor. So I remember my co-counsel and I Bacon and I walked over to the FBI, it was a beautiful summer day, not unlike this one, and uh, they told us that they had received information from a few sources who were trying to do business with Cuyahoga County and they felt like they were being shut out. And even though they didn't have particular inside information, they suspected there was a pay-to-play system in Cuyahoga County. And from that information, uh, the FBI went on to collect other source information and use other investigative techniques we'll probably talk about in a minute to develop the case that ended up in a 67 convictions. It's
1: not as if, though, this this kind of information, the, the information your sources were giving investigators really came out of nowhere. Though. Weren't there other examples of I guess, maybe similar pay-to-play or at least corruption-related schemes that you guys had prosecuted or at least looked into prior to summer 2007?
2: Summer of 2007 was really the beginning. And the thing I want to emphasize is that those business people who came forward at that time asked that their identities be protected, and their identities are not known to this day. And uh, if there's anything we've learned from this incredible episode in our history, it's that people who are doing business and living in this county can really make a contribution if they come forward. Uh, they can't; Their identities can be protected, and you never know what will happen with the information. In this case, it was remarkably successful.
1: Still talking like somebody who worked in law enforcement for a long time, even though uh, you, are, you are retired, <laughs> you still are the, the true
0: believer.
2: And I'll have to apologize in advance. I, I still use the word "we" to talk about law enforcement. So,
0: so before we go on, I'm wondering: could you give our audience just kind of a uh, a quick breakdown of sort of what this case entailed? Like what what happened, what uh, what sort of charges were filed, that kind of thing.
2: The targets of the investigation from the beginning, as I said, were Frank Russo and uh, Jimmy Demora, and. Uh, they were charged under a statute that was enacted in 1970 called the RICO statute, racketeering, influence, corrupt organization. And it was really a statute that was designed to attack organized crime and the mafia. It's a very powerful statute and it's designed for particularly this kind of situation where you have an organized effort to control an enterprise. And so as the investigation unfolded, Uh, we learned that not only were Frank Russo and Jimmy DeMora running a pay-to-play system that affected almost every department in Cuyahoga County, but also bled into the suburbs, into school boards, into Metro Hospital, into the VA Hospital, into the Cuyahoga Metropolitan Housing Authority, into two city councils. Uh, So it turned out to be an incredible web of bribery activity contractors paying to get contracts, uh, ordinary citizens paying to get jobs in the county, any kind of graft you could think of.
0: Did, uh, and this question to both of you, did both of you realize that this was a case that could really be uh, transformative to Northeast Ohio politics when it sort of first bubbled up?
2: I probably did not in my naivete. Um, And to be honest, I wasn't sure in that summer of 2007 whether we would ever get far enough to bring an indictment because it is so difficult to uh, prove bribery beyond a reasonable doubt. You have to prove three things. You have to prove that somebody uh, provided a thing of value to a public official, that it was an exchange for an official act, and that an official act was promised or performed. And that in exchange for part is really hard to prove because we have to know what was going on in somebody's brain. That's very hard to prove. So I didn't have high expectations going in, to be honest. By the time Chris Quinn heard about it on July 28, 2008, uh, because I don't think we had any leaks prior to that time. I might be wrong. No. Um, We had been working hard for a year. We'd been up on wiretaps for nine months, and we were executing search warrants in about 18 locations. So I guess I can pass it to Chris then to say, what he
3: knew. (laughs) Well, you know, there were a couple of things about that time. Before this broke out into the public consciousness in July, these guys had gotten loose in how they behaved because they'd gone so long with this behavior. So so by the beginning of 2008, we had a relatively new editor at the Plain Dealer and Susan Goldberg. um, And she just got a sense when she came in, something was wrong in county. Uh, And so we had started to invest some time in looking at patronage in Russo's office and some other things, no idea of of what the, the prosecutors would ultimately do. Um, on that day in July, as the scope of this became, I mean, the agents were popping up all over the place. I mean, we just kept hearing more places they were raiding. It was clear this was big, you know, and, and, and I was trying to remember last night when we when we knew, do we know that first day that it was about Rousseau and Demora? We knew early, I just can't remember if it was the first day, um, that 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 you don't invest that kind of uh, effort in in serving subpoenas and raids unless it's big. When we really knew how big it was was when the documents started to pop and and schemes would start being laid out um, we were doing a lot of interpreting of search warrants. And i got to say, in the media, we were very grateful for the way the federal prosecutors provided lots of detail in every document they filed because the devil was in these details. And, you know, it was a—every time one of these things would land, we'd have almost, a, a, you know, a 12 people pulling it apart to identify all of the new schemes that were being laid out and how they might have played so— it, 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 I guess my answer would be it didn't take long after that, that day of the raids for it to be clear this could be transformative.
2: And if I may, I wanted to comment on what Chris just mentioned about the Plain Dealer series on patronage in the county in the spring of 2008 because unbeknownst to them, they were actually helping us quite a bit in the investigation. We, uh, when we first started hearing on the wiretap, that some of our targets were being contacted by the plane dealer for the story on patronage we thought oh my gosh this is the end of the wiretap they're going to suspect that there's a law enforcement investigation they're going to stop talking on the phone we're going to lose all this great conversation we were getting but to the contrary what they did was start worrying out loud about (laughs) specifics that the plane dealer might uncover Uh, And there was one particular call that I'm recalling uh, where Frank Russo is worrying about the uh, employment application of Joe Gallucci, who we hadn't really been focusing on. And it turned out it was one of the counts in the indictment. Uh, Russo had uh, enticed Joe Gallucci to run a sham campaign against him. Uh, so that he could preclude any real opposition. and But for them worrying about the quality of his, he was, just to back up a minute, he was promised a job in the auditor's office in exchange for running a sham campaign against Frank Russo. And, but for that conversation, we probably wouldn't have focused on that wow, scheme. Wow, that's so, good to know. And the other thing I wanted to comment about how the media helped us uh, was that The investigation had two phases. The first phase was covert, which was summer of 2007 to 2008. Everything we did was very secret. We were so careful that we didn't even serve subpoenas on banks unless they had a national headquarters someplace else, because we just, not that we think a bank would knowingly spill the beans, but, you know, a subpoena lying on somebody's desk could be seen or whatever, you never know. So we were being very careful of what we did that could be disclosed to the public. And um, so there's some things we hadn't been able to do. And I think on day two or three of the Plain Dealer coverage, they had walked, the Plain Dealer had walked into independent City Hall and pulled the building permits for the improvements on Jimmy DeMora's house. Those improvements were a large part of the bribery schemes that uh, Commissioner DeMora had engaged in an FBI agent couldn't have walked into the independent city hall and said where Jimmy DeMora lived and said, please give us the building permits for his house. Uh, So we just had to do without. But they ended up being exhibits in the trial. And so I ran to the front lawn every morning to read The Plain Dealer (laughs) to get leads and (laughs) find out what documents we should get in an official way.
3: Yeah, and I I should say that that there, there was criticism later that that we hadn't done our watchdog role in all these years um, paying attention to the county. We had focused a lot of attention on Cleveland City Hall um, and, and we hadn't. The criticism was valid. Um, what the federal prosecutors did was a wake-up call that we had a job to do. Um, and our response was to assemble a team of eight, 10 people um, who, who went after every element of this we could. I mean, once this was unleashed there was a huge appetite by the public for this. Um, and and so we were leaving no stone unturned. I mean, we I don't know that we've ever invested the level of resources in a single enterprise that we invested in this for the long term.
2: And by the same token, I'm not sure in my tenure at the U.S. Attorney's Office, we ever invested as much in a law enforcement way in a single case, if you want to call us a single case. And I just have to mention that the FBI in particular was phenomenal on this. They stood up a whole squad to support us. And I don't think there are a lot of SACs in the country that special agents in charge that would have devoted that kind of resource, but it was essential to do this job.
3: And and I know you're probably going to get to this at some point, but this is important beyond words to the health of this region. You you mentioned there were companies that came in the beginning and said – you know, basically, we can't get in. Since that time, we've heard from no end of companies that said, "Yeah, I just wouldn't do business in Cuyahoga County because I refused to pay to play," and that was known. You just that was required. This was a moribund region up until 2008. There was not growth happening here. We were not healthy. Since that time, this this region has thrived. I mean, there's been a lot of good things. And, and I've said since then, you can date the renaissance of Northeast Ohio to the day of those raids. It was like, you know, the government changed ultimately because of this. After, after a century of trying, government reformers finally persuaded voters to get rid of that kind of government and to go with a new format. Uh, a lot of good has come about. If it weren't for this investigation, I suspect we'd still be more abundant. I don't know that there's been any more important federal investigation in the history of this county or this state because it did end uh, years and years of doing business the wrong way.
0: Let's focus on some of the... Uh, specifics of the case so you mentioned that leaks weren't getting out but you know it just kind of happenstance that the paper w- had happened to be doing a story on uh, you know uh, patronage at the same time how are you able to ensure that a case like this that was so you know widespread it touched a lot of different areas how are you able to ensure that leaks didn't get out
2: with the investigative techniques that we used in the normal investigation uh, you might have a short covert phase where you would subpoena, in the white collar area anyway, where you would subpoena documents and study them, subpoena some bank records, and then start confronting witnesses and seeing who you could get to uh, cooperate. In this case, we knew because of the insular nature of the relationships that Jimmy Demar and Frank Russo had with the contractors who were bribing them, that we weren't going to be able to break into that inner circle or as they used to call themselves, the A-Team, uh, without using a wiretap. That became pretty clear pretty early. And so um, our first several months effort was geared toward establishing probable cause. It's a tough burden in the federal system, but establishing probable cause that these conspirators who were engaged in ongoing criminal activity of the type that you can use a wiretap for, it's not every crime, that they were using a particular phone line to do it, uh, and that traditional methods of investigation were unavailable to us. So it's a tough burden. And not only do we have to get approval from a judge ultimately in order to do a wiretap, but first we have to go through probably a more rigorous screening at the Department of Justice in Washington in order to get permission to apply for a wiretap and so that that's the way we were able to do it and we really did not do much at all in the way of other traditional investigation while that wiretap was going on we did some things we did some trash pulls you know where we'd go and pick up somebody's trash and see what they're throwing out um we did a lot of uh and i say we this was the fbi and the irs an incredible team of people uh they'd be on the wire and they'd hear about a plan to meet up at a restaurant or a bar. They would dispatch undercover agents to go and do surveillance of that uh, meeting so that they could overhear in the restaurant what they couldn't hear on the phone because they weren't talking on the phone. Uh, So those were the types of techniques that we used uh, until we did the search warrants in 2008.
1: I mean, you talk about following them to restaurants. I believe agents also followed them as far as the... uh the West Coast or as far back or as far as Las Vegas at the very least, I mean.
2: They did indeed, and I'll never forget the day I got the call saying, an agent just said, we're going to Las Vegas, and we knew as soon as we heard that plan that we were going to get great evidence there, and we certainly did.
0: How did you collect evidence there? I mean, how how do you, you know, do you wear, like, mics in the hat? Or I mean, without divulging too much, I'm just curious, how do you, is it, because you have to have it on recording, well, I assume, right? And, and
3: these guys were going into, you know, pools where they're, yeah. you know, in bathing suits and yeah. things. So you really can't look like a federal agent.
2: Yeah. Um, well, we had a big surveillance team. Well, so we big. did a lot of uh, traditional surveillance. Uh, and uh, we there, we used some techniques that I don't think have become public. But uh, <laughs> one of my favorites uh, was that... Uh, we had a camera trained on the uh table where Jimmy DeMora and Ferris Kleim were playing poker. Ferris Kleem was the owner of Blaze Construction and he financed most of the Las Vegas trip. And this camera picked up the fact that they'd be sitting there next to each other playing and every now and then Ferris Kleim would just pass a chip over oh. to Jimmy DeMora. Oh. And so we played for the for the trial uh clips of this, and I had the agent on the stand who was able to identify by the color of the chip what the values of the chips were that were being passed. So we, we got a bribe on tape right wow. there. And then we also got, uh, I think we're going to hear a clip maybe later about another aspect of the Las Vegas trip.
1: Well, were you getting calls back from them? I mean, were, were they rep- how often would they report back to either you or somebody at the FBI about what they were seeing out there? I mean, okay, you're- hourly.
2: <laughs> daily at the at the least.
0: Was it was it that flagrant the behavior? I mean it, it seems like you know you mentioned you didn't have to do much investigative work to begin with because you just had the wiretap and uh, you know Chris and his team over there kind of scared him into basically talking about all their crimes. I mean was it that flagrant? Were they that flagrant with their behavior?
2: They were a little more flagrant in Las Vegas. <laughs> it's interesting the wiretaps were essential but they were only one piece to prove what we had to prove. Uh, and uh, if you went through scheme by scheme, you would see that, you know, a lot of the schemes also required uh, a lot of digging into documents, which we could only do after uh, we became uh, overt, and uh, witness testimony and other types of investigation. so the, the story wasn't exclusively in the wiretaps. They were still somewhat careful, and I think we're gonna hear some examples of that. They were still somewhat careful on the phone. Um, and they also, some of the schemes were so entrenched by the time that we were up on the wiretaps that they didn't have to talk about them much. And and one of those schemes was the, I think the biggest scheme, scheme of the case, which hasn't gotten a lot of attention because Frank Russo pleaded guilty, but his scheme involving the appraisal of commercial real estate in terms of financial harm to the county was the biggest. I think we estimated the harm at $11 million. The contracts were worth about $21 million. But this involved cash kickbacks through a law firm to Frank Russo in exchange for these uh, commercial appraisal contracts. And uh, by the time we were up on the wiretap, It was so entrenched that there was no discussion about it. Uh, Frank Russo would meet one of his employees, Sandy Klumkowski, in a coffee shop, and the money would change hands on a regular basis.
0: I believe we have a clip that we're going to play. Yeah,
1: we were going to pull you back into just um, somewhere a little more salacious. (laughs) I know we're talking about one of the largest schemes in the corruption probe. But as you said, you were getting reports back, I think, just about every hour, as you said, from Vegas about what they were seeing. I mean, did anything come as a surprise? Was it... Par for the course. Like we knew that this was going to happen when they went out there. I well, mean, for
3: example, when when Jimmy went up with the prostitute, that that you didn't go out to Vegas knowing that was going to happen.
2: Well, actually, we did. Oh, okay. <laughs> uh, because there was conversation on the wire leading up to oh, Las right. Vegas that Ferris claims I can't remember the word he used exactly, but that uh, the implication was that there would be. Prostitutes made available. Well,
1: I'm going to at least play one clip from there to at least give an idea of how uh, they felt the trip went.
4: Hello. You understand that I get in calls from all over Vegas now. I mean, I, I cannot be associated with you anymore. I can Listen to me. I left this place with a. Pres- I came in with a pristine sure, right. <laughs> and a proper reputation and image, and I'm leaving as a man whore. I <laughs> understand I'm leaving as a man whore here. I understand. But you know what? What happens in Vegas stays in Vegas. What happens in Vegas stays in Vegas. Captain, yeah, guys. Mark, Charlie, and Mark. Are they here? The Tory. What's going on? Uh, I, I'm, I'm just, You know I'm, Ron Elwood? Yeah, I remember Ronnie. I don't think he yeah. remembers. Tell him I'm Bill's buddy. Yeah. Hey, Jimmy, I was shocked, stunned in the fall by your guys' behavior. I really am. Uh-huh. Listen, you got to hear the stories. We'll have to fill you in. We'll just let you know about them. Okay. Joey Taglamonte was out of control, a.k.a. Vince Aguera. <laughs> <laughs> it's under a, a dual name we found out. <laughs> <laughs> <at the table. laughs> Joey the things? Taglamonte. Things you find out at the table. <laughs> <laughs> Uh-huh. Oh boy! Now, did you make a comeback yesterday? Yeah, I'm. I lost, I think, 500.
2: Or they did it.
1: Forlani. Public officials and contractors.
2: Yes, that was uh, Michael Furlani, an electrical contractor who owned Doan Pyramid, uh, talking to Commissioner Demora. Mr. Furlani was not in Las Vegas, uh, so he was getting reports from afar about what was going on and. This was interesting because there's an illusion that you wouldn't know about unless you studied the trial about the reference to Ron Elwood. Commissioner DeMora said, you know Ron Elwood and he was the concierge at the Mirage Hotel uh, who provided the prostitute at Ferris Cleams' request. So what we played at trial was uh, a zoomed in camera from above where Ferris Kleem is on the phone with Ron Elwood. We didn't have a wiretap on Ferris Kleem or Ron Elwood, so we didn't know what the conversation was until after Ferris Kleem cooperated. But Ferris Kleem wrote down a phone number and we were able to capture the phone number with a camera and track down that that was the phone number of the prostitute who actually did show up to provide services for Commissioner DeMora.
3: Well, when you listen to that recording, I mean, it, it sounds like something out of The Sopranos, right? Just, you know, guys misbehaving and, you know, thinking they're the kings of the world. I and mean, it just, that has, every one of these recordings had that feeling of people that felt entitled.
2: And that entitlement, sorry, that, that entitlement, I think, is highlighted in the last sentence. Mr. DeMora says, yeah, I think I lost 500. He didn't lose a dime. <laughs> His airfare was paid for. Ferris Clean gave Ferris Claim gave him an envelope with $6,000 in cash to gamble with there. And Ferris Clean was handing him $500 poker chips while they were playing.
1: Why didn't you feel you had enough after that trip? Obviously, you had something on camera. Maybe it's not the biggest case you'll have. But that, I mean, it seems like, you know, after following them out there, watching them, listening to them... You guys had enough to charge at that point. It may not have been everything, but you had enough to charge something. Why did you guys feel like you needed to continue?
2: You're highlighting a, a an essential tension in any undercover operation that's going on or any, any covert investigation. Uh, I think there's been a lot of discussion in the media about the recent uh, case that my old office did involving the scheme to disrupt the July 4th celebration in downtown Cleveland. There's always a tension between having enough evidence to convict and preventing future harm. And we had uh, in mind the fact that we had two sitting public officials who were very powerful who were engaged in an ongoing uh, scheme to corrupt their offices. And that had to stop, obviously. But we also felt an obligation to uh, ferret out how extensive it was, what other public officials were involved. So that, that was a constant tension. We talked about it all the time. And uh, at this stage, we thought there were still some schemes in the works that we wanted to develop further and settled on the summer months to take it down, as we say.
1: But even before the summer months, um, there was even some indication on the wire, at least, that some of them knew something was going on. I believe the clip I'm about to play, I believe, came after uh, Steve Pumper was arrested.
4: That's my great Hello. Hey. Hey. Um, We're on our way down. I just wanted you to think we were still home. Okay, good. Um, If Ricky gets there, just pull him aside, talk to him for a minute. I know. The the mother told me yesterday. You know what that is all about, don't you? Well, it's a tra- don't talk tra- on the phone. Don't talk. Th- right, all, right, all right, all right, And by the way, Pat called me too. Oh, okay. you're uh, kidding? Yeah. Is it that guy? Uh, no. But the last name name He doesn't think it's that first name. They think it's Mark. Oh, oh. But uh, I'll tell you that story too. He explained it to me. Uh, yeah. Said it came from the plane dealer. Oh, uh, this is sick. Yeah. We'll talk right. to Ricky and you tell me when I see you. Bye-bye.
1: Right, so even, even, you know, in all of that, there seemed to already be some concern on their part that, you know, something was afoot, even if they didn't know exactly what was going on. Is that right?
2: That's very true. And uh, the, we didn't arrest uh, Pumper. We actually just confronted him. Uh, but that is doing what we call tickling the wire. We wanted to provoke a response, and so we settled on the Friday before Memorial Day weekend to approach Steve Pumper on a separate scheme and see what's transpired.
0: get capital letter it's the must-have daily read for state house happenings five mornings a week cleveland.com provides a daily intelligence briefing filled with succinct timely information it's perfect for people businesses and organizations that care about decisions made by lawmakers the governor and all of state government from breaking news to rumblings in the rotunda if you're not getting capital letter you're missing out for more information, visit cleveland.com capitalletter capital letter. That's cleveland.com slash c-a-p-i-t-o-l-l-e-t-t-e-r.
4: Hello. What are you doing? Oh, what the fuck? I'm doing nothing. I'm trying to make calls, make a living, <laughs> help my friends make more money than they already got. <laughs> Right, Kara says i got more important things to do. Right now. By the way, i got to think of oh, a male. Kara, why didn't you have me? T- I could have took care of visiting Kara to keep her from being bored while you were out of town. i got to think of a male name now. Listen to me, public service is my motto. I know it is. Public, <laughs> servant. That's, I'm a public, public servant, I'm at her beck and call. A good oh. male name? Jimmy, what the f***? <laughs> <laughs> Jimmy Pumper, that sounds good to me michael saying michael pumper i don't know what to do oh we look at him uh, you don't want him looking like that guy i know he's a wreck he is named after you want a role model not a fucking, uh, delinquent like him i agree i agree
1: chris july 28 2008 i think you referenced this earlier that's when agents fanned out was it 175 and is that my understanding
2: it was over a hundred. I'm not sure it was 175, but yeah, might have been.
1: As metro editor, how were you uh, finding out, or how was it kind of trickling in? Uh, what was exactly going on that day?
3: Yeah, we're going, you know, we're going back 10 years. So it, 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 it's, it's. I, I have a, a vague recollection that there was a, there was a group that had massed somewhere um, that somebody from the public had seen. You know, because they were dressed for the for the job. Um, so, so early in the day, we knew something was up, but it was very quick that it started to pop like popcorn. They were showing up here, they were showing up there. And so, you know, I can't remember what time of the day this would have been, but there was a point in the day where we realized something bigger than normal was going on. And so we started sending out, I mean, I don't think there was a news reporter in the room that day that wasn't working that story in some way, shape, or form. And again, I don't remember exactly when we figured out it was DeMora and Russo, but it was
0: early. Did it seem at the time like – did you have an inkling of who it might be or could it just be anyone? I mean I guess I'm trying to get a feel for what politics was like around here. It
3: it, it did become clear. I mean when you said we were getting the independence records on day three uh, for Jimmy DeMora – um, I mean, that shows evidence that we're looking at improvements to his house by day three. I, I recall, I can't remember if it was uh, who it was, uh, if it was John Caniglia or um, one of the other reporters. Somebody tapped into it, or Mike Tobin. I, I think he was still with us then before he went to you guys. Um, somebody got clued in that this was DeMore and Russo, and that just turned everything upside down. I and mean, look, you got to understand who these guys were. Uh, Chris Evans did a really good profile on the way, they had commanded this area. They were just good old boys, showing up, partiers, um, uh, and you know, everybody, everybody loved them. They were great guys, and that's the way they went around. You know, once once the clue was them, everything, every, you know, all eyes were were turned toward. What are they about? We just started tearing into it, and then when when, when once the, how how quickly were the search warrant affidavits. Unsealed. When when did the record finally start to show up? Do you remember?
2: Well, the affidavits um, I don't think ever were totally unsealed, but um, I think my recollection is you focused in on Commissioner Demora and Otto Russo within hours because yeah. we were searching their houses and we were at the administration building searching their offices, so it yeah. didn't take. That's what. Yeah. Uh, I think you were clued in pretty quickly to that,
3: because the county workers weren't allowed in that section, so they were out. Right. Correct. I think right. they were on the street, weren't yeah, they? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. That would have been would have been the way.
2: But and I think you pieced together a lot from grand jury subpoenas that were also served the same day, which is a common law enforcement technique. And
3: um, when they're served on government agencies, they become public records. Exactly. And we started to piece together what they were looking for.
2: Right. And. Y- Basically, it was a list of names. And so that gave you a good starting point, I think. Not that that was our intention, but we had to...
3: We found it very helpful.
1: (laughs) And you had an idea, though. I mean, you guys must have had conversations with the FBI prosecutors that this was going to go public that day. Um, Was that something where you guys literally just had to say, we're comfortable at this point with everybody knowing? Uh, you, You were just talking about a year's worth of investigations um uh, being done in a covert manner so nothing would leak out. Uh why was it okay at this point for things to break out into the open?
2: Yeah, we were comfortable that we would be able to make a case on Auditor Russo and Commissioner DeMora by the time we executed the search warrants. But I still recall I was in the command center at the FBI starting at about six o'clock that morning and the searches started at nine. And there was a moment, probably about quarter to nine, when there was a little pause in the action. And even though in my brain I knew we were going to make a case, I had this sort of gut-wrenching moment where I thought, we are about to turn this city upside down and we'd better deliver. And luckily we were able to, uh, in a way that I never predicted would be as broad as it was. But...
3: You, you had mentioned earlier you were um, that, that push-pull of, of stopping them before they do more harm. The minute this went public, there was a microscope on everything they did. I mean, they were pretty hostile in their meetings going forward. Did you feel like going pub- public like that would at least stop the bleeding, that they would, they would behave better? Or did you sense even after that they were continuing to do bad things?
2: Obviously, the hope is that it would stop on a dime. Uh, We later learned that uh, Frank Russo, uh, after the uh, raids, continued to take money out of the VAS scheme. Uh, A few more payments happened. So we didn't stop it totally on a dime, but I'd like to think that uh, we had an impact. And we had anecdotally from other sources that some people on the street who might have been tempted were saying things like, I don't want to end up like Jimmy DeMora. So at least for the short term, I think we had some deterrent effect.
3: There was a, a for me, the most cynical moment in this was a, um, a wiretap transcript that involved Kevin Kelly talking to somebody. Um, and he was basically explaining, we don't have any more money for you know, kickbacks right now. But we have the Human Services tax coming up, and that'll give us the money machine again. And you—you you actually had him talking about we got to get this tax passed to fund the corruption machine. And that was staggering because the Health and Human Services tax is what goes for for Metro Health and taking care of indigent patients and things. And you had these top officials scheming to just siphon away the money.
0: What kind of space did your brain occupy that day was it like shock was it oh this was inevitable what
3: no when a big story like that breaks all you're thinking about is getting it I mean just making sure you're everywhere and every reporter in the room wanted a piece of this I mean this was this was clearly going to be big and uh, you know, so on that first day, it's crisis. let's get let's get everything we can. And then, in the ensuing days, you start to get more organized about how we're going to attack this. Once you get the any name that came up, any business that was named, what contracts did they have with the county? Yeah, you know, how long have they been doing business? And, and it just became a methodical attack. I, I, really, the the documents filed by the prosecutors over the next few years, were very illuminating. I mean, they they would include—not all of them do this in every case, but but when you had transcripts of the nature I've just discussed, those kinds of things would be included, and the public got a really strong picture of exactly what was being investigated here, and there was a huge appetite for this.
1: But you're still talking about, I guess, even from a reporting perspective, everything you could put together. I mean, even when you were able to stop and maybe take a little stock of everything that's coming in— you obviously didn't know about the FBI investigation, but you had done reporting on this. Once you kind of realized the breadth of everything was going on, even from a visceral perspective, what's going through your head?
3: This is, this is the biggest case we've seen in many, many years. You know, Doug Clifton had been the editor before Susan Goldberg, um, and he sent me a note sometime after this blew up. Um, and he basically said, I knew it. I wanted to look at these guys, and and I had been dissuaded from doing so, but I knew it. I knew that there was something there, and I think it was regret that that he hadn't assigned a team to dig into it um, on his own, because we, we, we hadn't been paying attention. This was very good for journalism in Cleveland. It was a reminder of the role of Watchdog. Um, you know, Right now, there's an investigation going on in the county of a much smaller nature, and people are saying, why is that such big news? And it's like, because you can never go back to the way it was. You have to be vigilant. That's the duty now, is to make sure we don't go backwards.
1: And after, or even that day, I believe, you started meeting with either targets, subjects, witnesses of the investigation, and that went on for how many years after that? I mean... For a long time, for a long time, as you guys did these proffers, as you read, I guess the the investigative files from the FBI. Was there even a sense from everybody you were talking to that, uh, not that necessarily they knew where they were targeted, but this this was just the way it was done in Cuyahoga County. It's been this way for years. This is how you get things done. We know that that's what we need to do to either get a contract, to get business, to get somebody's ear. I mean, was there – did you get that sense when you are talking to people that this is just the way it is?
2: It, with some of the witnesses, yes. Um, the, I'm glad you mentioned Kevin Kelly because from listening to The Wire, the agents determined that the first person we were going to approach is Kevin Kelly. He was kind of a Jimmy DeMora wannabe. He was in training to take over that role, in our view. And it was clear that he knew a lot and he was very intelligent. He had a way with the words. And so um, they, the, the lead agents, Chris Oliver and Mike Massey, were the ones who approached Kevin Kelly that morning. And indeed, he flipped almost immediately. It took him 24 hours to get an attorney. And the next day, we were starting a four-day debriefing of him. And he had a phenomenal memory, and he just went scheme by scheme by scheme, schemes we didn't know about. (laughs) And it it really became the blueprint for a big part of the investigation. Um, And my partner, Antoinette Bacon, and I participated in all of these debriefings uh, because we wanted to assess firsthand how they would be as witnesses. We were the ones who had to make the recommendation of what kind of plea agreement to enter into with them, what kind of sentence we thought was appropriate. So the degree of their contrition, the, their honesty, their credibility um, were all factors that we had to take into consideration. The other one that stands out in my mind is a very chilling proffer that I participated in was uh, Bruce Zaganini who was an attorney with the law firm that funneled the bribes to Russo in connection with the commercial appraisal contract. And he methodically, this lawyer, this former prosecutor, who was in a firm of other former prosecutors, all four members of that firm were participating, um, just went step by step on how they, uh, the bank transactions they used to get the cash, how they got it back to Frank Russo, it was just chilling.
3: Yeah, the other thing, if you think about the months that follow, the, the July 28th, it just keeps building. I mean, you know, as more and more documents are being filed in court, the the breadth of the schemes. And yet Jimmy DeVore is not under arrest. Frank Russo is not under arrest. Um, the distaste this community had for those guys by the time they were getting indicted, it was it was huge. I mean, people wanted to see those guys. And handcuffs. They, the, 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 this. It was clear they, they had done bad things. You had to go to trial. You had to go through the process. But the evidence was clear. Um, it took a long time to get there. When, when, when did those indictments come down?
2: Well, um, they were indicted in the fall of 2010. So it took two uh, two years for us to get those uh, indictments through. But in the meantime, we had been building, building, building and we had kind of a mantra in the office because as you can imagine there were leads coming in from everywhere that could have distracted us and uh, one of the agents came up with the term of uh, RICO pyramid we're going to focus on the RICO pyramid in other words we were only going to work on schemes that would ultimately get us to the tip of the pyramid which was uh, DeMora and Russo uh, so, We started filing charges in, I think it was June of 2009, uh, starting with Kevin Kelly and three other defendants. And we intentionally made our indictment, our informations, as we called them, because we had worked out plea agreements with them in advance. Um, We made them very detailed because we thought the public had a right to know. but we also were trying to signal the targets down the line, uh, this is what's coming. Uh, so, and it turned out to be pretty effective. And there there was a time there where we were filing something almost every week. Right. Just because it, it's not that we planned it that way, but it's, it can be very time-consuming to you know, get the lawyer's attention, sit down, negotiate all the aspects of the plea agreements and so forth. But uh, uh, there was a time there when... Uh, uh, we were filing almost weekly I think i can
3: 't tell you how many days we had where there was a double truck inside the plane dealer that would contain nine, ten, eleven schemes that have been detailed in the new in the new documents and so so there was by the time of jimmy DeMora's arrest, there was this strong desire to see him in handcuffs and I had and Susan Goldberg, an editor that was on me pretty much every day saying, "I want that picture when he gets arrested." I want that picture now. The federal prosecutors aren't really cooperative in that in that in that area. They're not doing perp walks like the people used to do years ago. Um, so we were working as hard as we could to get a sense of when that would come down. You knew it was coming, and we had a photographer. We got we got a rough idea of the week. We had him there. There was about a second and a half where you could actually see Jimmy DeMora in handcuffs, and he was the only guy that got it. And so I kept my job because we got the photo.
1: Well, and to, you know, symbolize how you did keep your job, now it's on display outside your yeah, office. Right. <laughs> life-size, life-size. <laughs> it's, it's a huge photo. Um, mm-hmm. It's the first thing I saw when I got
0: hired here, actually. That's actually, the first thing that was explained to me like when I was walking around the room. <laughs> yeah. So.
2: Well, and I was worried when that photo came out because I thought we had a leak. And how could they have known to sit on Jimmy DeMar's house that morning? And it was explained to me later that we had filed the information on Frank Russo because he had made a last-minute decision to plead guilty. So we had filed the information on Frank Russo. We had to pull him out of the indictment, filed the information about a week before to maybe 10 days. So I think you were I'm gathering that you were guessing that given the pace that we usually do things, that maybe the time was right. Well,
3: you don't. Know. We were out there a whole bunch of mornings. Oh. We, we were reading tea leaves every week. It Probably for, I don't know, five, six weeks leading up to that, we'd, we'd see something and think, oh, so this is coming. And so a photographer would spend the next three mornings hanging out out there. It was just we weren't there every day, but it was just it was blind luck that we got that in the end.
1: And throughout, all, and throughout it all, Anne, I mean, you you are probably the best example of a federal prosecutor just saying, no comment, no comment. I think it really came from you, no comment. I mean, and, and we're talking about two years from the raids becoming public to, you know, Jimmy DeMora being indicted, you know, a, a myriad of other cases being filed, no comment. And those attacks on you kind of got personal. I mean, Jimmy was a gregarious man and he would, you know, he would talk bad about anybody he thought was going to attack him. I mean, how did... You know, you say no comment, but obviously they're talking about you. How did you react to that? I mean, you've been a prosecutor for 28 years, but, you know.
2: 38. Uh, At that (laughs) point, 28. (laughs) Okay. True, true. Uh, Yeah, those attacks didn't bother me one bit. Uh, And one of the benefits of being a prosecutor is we get to talk through our official record. We speak through our indictments. And uh, it was no problem saying no comment. In fact... It uh, came up at my retirement party. They gave me a little compendium of newspaper articles <laughs> about my cases, and they said ninety percent of them say Ann Rowland said no comment.
3: <laughs> it was. You're right, though. It was. It was caustic as as the pressure was building on him. He was still a sitting commissioner, um, and and he and some of his fellow commissioners actually stood by him during this period. We were surprised by that. Um, but but he would he would be ugly with reporters who would go to the meetings to ask questions, and, um, I mean, he was very insulting to the people involved, and still is to this day. I mean, he's still very bitter about it.
4: I take care of them, for God's sakes, you know? I said... Think about the, you know, he'll have to pay alimony now. The kids, you know, divide that up. It's going to be brutal. It'll crush the guy. You know, get us some more cash, and that means it's less for him. He goes, yeah, yeah, I got to work this out. He goes, what? he goes, what job is it? I said, I don't know the job. That's the first I heard about the job. I'm going to find out, and then I could say you, you could, I could give you the information. Right. You got to be, you you gotta to be him there him. and be just, you know. And I might throw out a comment, you know. Uh, don't worry, just, you know, be very, you know very quiet about it. I don't want to lie to him, you know, saying, hey, please. i will just, all Come. I can say, oh, no, I don't want to do that. You know, I wouldn't I'm, lie to you. you know, I'm not going to lie to him. All I'll I can, say is, all I can uh, say is, hey, you know what, uh, you know, with <laughs> me never before, home, oh, if she leaves, you know Demore what I'm going to say? Right Listen now. to me. Listen yeah. to me. Yeah. is calling you now? Yeah, right now. Fuck it. Let it ring for a minute. Okay. Come, you're talking to me. All I, are you there? Yeah, I am here. You're not putting me on three with him, are you? No. Oh. God. I'll say is hey, listen. With all these hours at work, I'm never home. If she leaves me, I'll get fucking killed. So I need her to make more money right now. That's should leave it like that. That's all. That's it. And then he already said, he, said he goes, "Is she leaving him?" I said, "I don't know." I said, "Look, the way he lives his life, I guarantee you, he's quiet about the stuff. But he must have got caught. You know, I'm sure of it." Perfect. Why do you think? This? Why are you losing all that weight? She's on the prowl, looking around. She's trying. He she that. up to him. him. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> So it's pretty funny. So it's good. Oh God! Well, it'd be funnier if it's true. that i really hear I'm <laughs> gagging around.
0: So you mentioned uh, a little earlier on in this episode that uh, you know the plane dealer kind of initially missed some of this. I mean, they didn't necessarily see it coming. It wasn't exactly telegraphed. Um, you know, I went through and read Ted Diaden's, uh article about kind of the plane dealer coverage of this, and one of the uh, quotes that really stood out to me was this. Part of the reason is that despite their historic image as cynical curmudgeons, too many reporters are unwilling to bite the hand of the sources that feed them. Another is that reporters ever on the lookout for the man-bites-dog story can grow numb to business as usual. I'm wondering what you make, like in retrospect, 10 years later, when you look at that coverage, um, what what do you think you did really well and what do you think maybe you didn't do so well? Look, I, we,
3: up until July 28, you know, 2008, we blew it. I, I do think... I think because Jimmy and Frank were, you know, gregarious, fun guys, um, reporters got a kick out of them and and didn't look deep enough. And I was Metro editor. This is me. This is on me. I should have been directing that. I I think once July 28th happened, I think we did a stellar job. I think the team at the Plain Dealer then um, really dug in and laid this out in such clear detail uh, that I mean, we're working with great source material, obviously, uh, that voters did ultimately change government. If you're asking what we've learned, um, I'm getting questioned a lot by people who work at the county about why we are so diligently on what's going on now. Pete Krause has found things that I don't think anybody in in, um, the investigation side has seen. Uh, and, And we do ask a lot of questions. I think... Armin Budish is a pretty good guy, but we have to be diligent in, in looking at these kinds of things or we will slide back. I, I, I can't say it enough. I don't think there's any greater legacy than, than what the prosecutor's office did here. They really did give this county a chance to thrive. It's now on everybody else, the public, the voters, the media, to make sure we don't go back because we did backslide for a lot of years.
0: Part of the reason I think we wanted to do this episode ten years later is because it was such a big event, and it it did seem to change things politically. But uh, you know, I'm looking at it from the thirty thousand foot view. I wasn't here. Uh, do you think it did change things politically here?
3: Yeah. Well, the, the government's changed. So so we changed the format of government, created a county executive. There's still some people that don't like that, but I think it's a it's a cleaner form. I the bigger council, I, I think, has shown a greater diligence. Of being a watchdog. Dan Brady is the council president now. He's holding Armin Budish's feet to the fire, as he should. That's what the checks and balances are. Um, I, I think the, the media is much faster to ask questions than, than they were. Um, I, I, I don't think anybody can question that we're not much further ahead than we were 10 years ago. And, and I give most of the credit to what happened. We cleaned up the pay for play. Uh, they, look, there are going to be pockets of corruption. There always will be. But but the pay to play atmosphere of Cuyahoga County doesn't exist today the way it did for four years. And I think you mentioned, everybody said, well, this is the way it was always done. That was their excuse. This is the way it's always been done. It was criminal the way it was always done. And that has largely, I think, been cleaned up.
1: And is he right um, that pay to play is over in Cuyahoga County?
2: Well, I think that culture of corruption isn't there anymore. But I, at the moment, I'm a little discouraged. We're Right now, down in Akron, the same courtroom where we tried Jimmy DeMora, there's a trial going on involving bribery at Metro Hospital. This, this bribery scheme just occurred just a few years after we convicted the head of their construction management team and uh, it's just shocking to me that in that very institution there wouldn't have been more of a deterrent effect and to be honest if if there's a conviction in that trial I wouldn't be surprised if at sentencing they would argue that he should have a higher sentence because of that history in that institution uh, We and I'm not sure that the new form of government is going to be the end-all and be-all in terms of corruption. It's certainly more efficient uh, not to have all these elected public officials in all the various departments. Uh, But in the mid-'90s, I prosecuted a corruption scheme. 13 people were convicted in Summit County, which is the only other county that has this form of government. And they had that form of government at the time. And uh, we convicted the deputy county administrator and the general counsel for Summit County. William Hartung. Yeah, William Hartung and Cindy Peters. Uh, So in any form of government, we can have a problem. And, And as Chris said, we just have to be continuously vigilant. And we need people to speak up. All those people that... Chris remembers talking to who came up to me after this case broke and said, I always knew there was something going on there. I always was suspicious. Uh, those kinds of comments. Don't keep those to yourselves. The, they need to be reported. And
3: I do. I, I agree. with you. It is surprising the incidents we've had since then. You would have thought there would have been a longer period. I mean, we've reelected to Cleveland City Council, a couple of people who were convicted of abusing their office. They, you know, they've gotten out, they got their records cleared, and they're serving again. That's surprising. And, and look, the, the, the investigation that is going on right now with regard to the county's IT department, that what they're looking at stinks. And, and the fact that people w- w- didn't look at the 28 years that Jimmy DeMora got and think, wow. I'm not going to do that. I don't, and the rewards are not that huge. It's a it's a huge risk versus not a great payoff, except for Frank Russo. Um, But they did. I mean, it it looks bad right now, and I think uh, there'll be charges that come out of that case.
0: You know, it's interesting you bring up some of the kind of ongoing stuff because one big takeaway that I get from this story is that the civic culture was broken in Cleveland. It, It just it was flawed. Um, You know, and obviously I I didn't see anything quite like this, you know, in my year here uh, yet. Uh, But there was this minor scandal on the uh, city council with Councilman Joe Simperman, Um, you know, and it wasn't necessarily pay to play or anything like that. It was just he was improperly voting on contracts that were going to his wife's firm. It's it's, it's not on the same level and I don't want to pretend like it is. What what was telling about that was the way that politicians reacted. You know, Mayor Frank Jackson coming out just immediately in support, basically a day before Simperman pleads guilty, says, yeah, I screwed up. Um,
3: but but you got to put some perspective on that. Yeah. I mean, um, it was wrong. I mean, Joe took an oath to do something. He didn't do it. He broke the law, and he will forever be known now mm-hmm. as the guy who did that. I'm sure he's mortified. Um you know, and you can make a case that he did profit. His wife works for the company that got the contracts. The truth is that company would have gotten the contracts if he had abstained. And on occasion, he did abstain. His own law department, his own lawyer, prepared the documents that put his name on it, which which is which is questionable. Um, it was distressing to see the number of people that came out right away and and stood by him. Um, yeah, do I don't but,
0: think simperman is necessarily the issue I think he, it's the the other people kind of the but, reaction but
3: yeah. the judge in that case immediately referenced the corruption case from 10 years ago in saying we cannot tolerate anything like this I you know Joe did not enrich himself Joe did dumb things but the zero tolerance for that is what's important he he even though he had a lot of people saying this is no big deal the system worked. He, wa- he pleaded guilty. He, he has, He's paying the price. Um,
0: and, and that's a good sign. You also mentioned the county corruption or the, uh, the IT scandal that's kind of going on right now. And uh, I've noticed that Armin Budish has really kind of gone out of his way to really make it known, like, hey, I'm not, I'm not involved in this. This doesn't involve me. Does that happen without, uh, you know, DeMora and Russo? Well, I, I, I've been a little bit
3: surprised that Armin Budish has – I mean, he's almost been in a bunker. In In his State of the County speech, he addressed it head on. Um, but I was surprised that when this came up – because it does look bad – that he didn't stand on the side of the taxpayer immediately and say, I'm outraged by this. I'm embarrassed this is happening in my administration and, and we're going to fix this. I think he's scared of it because he knows – how badly everybody involved was tainted by this. A lot of people went to prison, and you know Jimmy is still there. How Are there many others that are still behind bars?
2: There are five or six who are still in custody. Um,
1: Three of them are in the same prison, actually. I looked this up right. the other day. Jimmy, um, uh, Anthony Calabrese, and uh, Michael Gabor are all at the uh, federal prison in Lisbon.
0: I did want to ask one more question about... Um, you know, we mentioned the civic culture was broken back then. Is the civic culture still broken or has it repaired itself? Or have I, the people repaired itself? I think
3: guess? it's a lot better. I, I, but, but again, um, this investigation that's going on now will help define a little bit about where we are exactly. Um, and, and I share hands distress at the fact that there are people that are out there still abusing the system.
1: Well, uh, yeah. I mean, Chris, you led me into it very nicely. Um, 28 years, it's, I believe, uh, the um, same amount of time that Kwame Kilpatrick got in the city of Detroit. Half the time that Rob Ligoyevich got, this could be for either of you, really. Twice the time. Twice the t- Oh, it's I, twice the time. Thank 20, you. 20. Uh, I'm a journalist, not a mathematician. <laughs> I, but I, I, you think, asked, yeah.
3: I think I'll have a different perspective than Ann. So I, let's have Ann go Well, first. I was
1: going to say, I think you guys only asked for, I shouldn't say only because 22 years is a long sentence, but uh, Judge Leoy went above and beyond even what the recommendation was for you. And, you know, that's still, I mean, six years on, that is something that uh, people still talk about. I, I don't want to say anybody, I don't think I hear many people say railroaded, but I think they think, you know, a conviction that maybe that shouldn't have led to 28 years.
2: Well, if I can respond first with kind of a a nerdy response, a legal response, and that is that in the federal system, sentences are driven by the federal sentencing guidelines, which is a complicated formula that takes into consideration uh, the history and characteristics of the defendant, the position of trust the defendant was in, the amount of money that was involved. Uh, whether or not there was more than one bribe and all sorts of other factors and we had a two-day sentencing hearing in front of Judge Leoy in which we went through scheme by scheme and she made rulings on what the financial loss was for each scheme which is the major driver in the sentencing guidelines and There are three different ways it can be calculated. I won't go into great detail, but in each case, she used the most conservative number of the three possible ways of calculating it. So this sentence was well within those guidelines, first of all, that Congress approved. So they believed that uh, crimes of this magnitude should carry a sentence of this magnitude. Uh, Secondly, Commissioner DeMora showed no remorse whatsoever in sentencing and, in fact, made statements. I can't quite recall the details this far away from it, but um, pretty much blamed the prosecutors, blamed the government, uh, and showed no remorse. And she did something that was a little unusual. Um, she took the tax counts and made them consecutive to the bribery counts, which made it 28 years instead of 25. And I don't know if she did that because of what Mr. DeMora said at his sentencing or not, I have no way of knowing, Um, but it was pretty provocative uh, tactic for Mr. DeMora to take at that time of his life. Um, And I would point out that this was not, as was reported once in a while, uh, the longest sentence in american history for a public political corruption case there was a judge in pennsylvania who got twenty eight years also in two thousand eleven for taking a million dollars in exchange for some juvenile court uh... prison contracts so
1: it's merely tied
2: so he's in a three-way tie for the longest with kwame kilpatrick but when you look at the fact that he was in charge of an enterprise that affected so many governmental functions. I mean, I have never seen a corruption case that was so broad. There are some that involve more money, but never this many schemes that that I have ever seen. And I I think that's worth uh, making note of, and as Chris points out, probably had an incredible effect for a decade on the economic life of this county nobody can calculate the damage that was done it's probably impossible to do but the fact that we're engaged in a renaissance as Chris indicates since the date of these raids would indicate that Frank Russo and Jimmy DeMora have to take part of that responsibility.
3: And, and really, I, I, my feeling on this, because there are people that debate this hotly, he didn't kill anybody, he didn't rape anybody, he's serving this incredibly long sentence. What he did was abuse the public trust and have people lose faith in their government. He ran for this office. He wanted this job. He went to the people and said, I want to operate this enterprise that is about public service and immediately set about turning it to his own profit. Those sentences should be big, because the message has to be sent to others that if you abuse the public trust and you disillusion the populace,
0: it's a big cost. DeMora recently kind of made a plea for a pardon, at least a public plea. I don't think he made like an official plea. Uh, do you think there's any chance of that happening?
2: Well, now that I'm allowed to uh, speculate on such things, um, I. The only thing I'll say about that is that in prior administrations, the pardon power, which is an absolute unreviewable power of the president, was exercised with a lot of deliberation. <laughs> and I participated in these meetings where a, a pardon application would come in to the president, the pardon attorney staff in Washington would review it, send it out to the U.S. Attorney's Office for review. We would get the judge's opinion who presided over the case. Uh, We would respond in writing, and there'd be a careful deliberation about whether this person uh, was treated unfairly and was going to suffer uh, permanent repercussions from the conviction. And none of that seems to be going on now. That process seems to be totally bypassed, so I don't know what to predict, but I would hope that for the reasons Chris just stated about the magnitude of the abuse of trust here that uh, a pardon would not be considered.
3: He might ultimately get his sentence reduced. You know, there have been some other rulings since then that he's tried to apply. I I do think even if he were to walk out tomorrow, um, the message of what he did would still be there. I mean, he is a broken man, a disgraced person. Um, uh, You know, walking out tomorrow, he's not going to resurrect his his leadership ability. Um, He is the example for Northeast Ohio of what happens when you abuse that trust. No matter what what happens going forward, uh, I think Ann and her team delivered that message very effectively.
0: So we've talked about a lot here today and I want to kind of try to bring it all in. Uh, this question is for both of you. What did we learn from all this? Did, did, did we learn anything from, you know, this case and did things change for the better?
2: That's a tough question to answer really. Uh, the, I think we've learned that um, the system works ultimately. That uh, We have the tools to investigate and prosecute these cases but we can only do it with the help of the public. And I just hope that whatever damage was done to the public's trust in government that they will still feel motivated to come forward and say something if they see something going wrong or tending towards this direction and that we will not descend into this culture of corruption that we were in in the decade prior to 2008. You know, I
3: think we've all learned we need to do our jobs. I mean, there were complaints back in 2008 that the county prosecutor had missed all of this, and it's the county prosecutor's job not to. The current case is being investigated by a team of the federal investigators and the county prosecutor. I think the, count- the current county prosecutor learned a lesson. He was around back then. Um, I think the media, not just not just the, the plain dealer Cleveland.com, I think all of the media learned that they need to fulfill their watchdog role. Um, everybody needs to be vigilant, and the voters can, should, should be just as vigilant as everybody else and, and elect people um, who, who they believe will be honest in office. The minute we stop, the minute we start, stop fulfilling our duties, we will descend back into a,
0: an ugly system. Well, thank you both for so much for joining us, Anne. Really appreciate you having the show. And Chris, thank you again. Good to be here. Thank you.